Well, we're in 1 John 2 this morning. Uh, if you'll turn there, if you don't have a Bible, we have one we'd love to give you. It's at the back at our uh, information desk in the foyer. Uh, again, this is a series called As Children of God. We're, we're working our way through the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, um, and we're looking to see what does it mean to be children of God? What sort of confidence should we have? What are the benefits and the blessings of being the very children of God? I read an article this week on the the pervasiveness of the guilt complex in uh, North America. Have you heard of this? You've heard of a guilt complex? So uh, what this refers to is this sort of unrelenting sense of, of guilt, naturally, over either sins committed in the past, maybe it's past sins or failures, shortcomings, uh, bad decisions, and so that, le- that leads to this lingering guilt. Or it could be, it's often, as I understood from these sociologists, This guilt complex sometimes comes from this feeling like there's so much more that I could be doing. There's so much, I could be doing so much better as a mom or dad or as a neighbor or as a a worker or as a church member or as an evangelist or whatever it is. And so sometimes the guilt complex is actually fueled by feelings of inadequacy. I just haven't done enough. And sometimes, sometimes that guilt complex actually comes from things we don't even know if they were wrong or not. We're, we're, we're wondering, did I do something wrong? Was this actually uh, an offense? And so this guilt complex can, can really linger and it can plague people. And it won't surprise you probably to hear uh, that such a guilt complex can be the source of pain and, and distress that affects relationships. It affects uh, our spiritual health, our physical health even, our mental health. It, it affects just our overall well-being. And over the years, I've talked to many folks who've had really been dealing with sort of a debilitating sense of guilt. I talked to a guy not too long ago. Uh, I saw him at the end of the service, and I was thrilled to see him, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, so I went up to him at the end of the service, and I said as much. I said, hey, it's so good to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you forever. Are you doing okay? And he said, well, you haven't seen me forever because I haven't been here. He went on to share with me that uh, he said, I just feel too guilty. I felt too guilty to be among God's people worshiping Him. He shared with me what he had done and how broken he was and how he had sought forgiveness from the Lord. But he said, I just don't feel like, I don't feel comfortable in the very presence of God. And I tried to assure him that that God wasn't angry at him. God hadn't turned his back on him. Um, God was not bent on his destruction. But that sort of guilt can be a destroyer. Now, guilt is not always a bad thing, is it? I mean, sometimes God uses guilt. If we're caught in sin, God uses guilt among the believer to bring us to a place of repentance. Sometimes those who are walking, again, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, that God brings guilt to to bring to himself. And sometimes God causes guilt in a person in order to bring them to saving faith. This is a person who's been apart from Christ, and, and they feel the weight of their own sin. Right? The gospel is only good news to those who have been crushed by the burden of the law. And they're made aware of just how far they have fallen and how short they are from God's holiness. So guilt is not inherently bad, but prolonged guilt is, especially for the believer. Unrelenting guilt, excessive guilt. The Christian life is not intended to be a guilt-riddled life, but instead a life of freedom. 
That's what John will communicate in this letter that we're looking at this morning. In fact, at the very end of the letter, to those who are anxious and confused and guilty and worried and, and so on, uh, John gives his purpose statement, if you will. Here's what John, 1 John 5 says at the end of this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, he says, that you have eternal life. So from somewhere in Ephesus, toward the end of his life, John, who's probably in his 90s at this point, he's writing to a group of churches in and around Ephesus, many who, as I said last week, are confused, they're anxious, they're weighed down with their own guilt, they're uncertain kind of where they stand with God, and he writes this letter to assure them of who they are in Christ. Now there is, as we've already seen, there is a warning, there are warnings in here, to those who profess to be in Christ but are not really repenting or believing in Him as the Son of God. But the point of the letter is, is, is not to cause true believers to doubt or to create within believers a guilt complex. Again, what John wants to do is to comfort and encourage those who really are trusting in Jesus. So in this spirit, he writes this section that we're going to look at this morning, which is so beautiful and, and powerful and, and reassuring. And in it, we're going to see, really, three reassurances for those who are in Christ. So, it's a very brief section. Uh, let me read it uh, entirely. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. The word of the Lord reads this way. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know who him, who, him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So here in this early part of the letter, again to these struggling Christians and, and some who are being persecuted, John writes this letter, and then he inserts, right here, the, the part I just read, this sort of brief poem. Now, this is not uncommon in the New Testament letters. In fact, we see Paul do it over and over in his letters, for someone, an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit to be writing a letter, a specific letter to a group of people, and then to be sort of overwhelmed with gratitude and worship. And so that writer, so then he, he includes in there a poem or a hymn. Again, Paul does it, Peter does it. It's probably not a good thing for us to imitate. And what I mean by that is if, if you're writing a letter to someone or, or a text and you have the inclination to put one of your original poems in there, this is probably not a good idea. Some of the worst words that have ever been said to me are someone coming and say, hey, let me show you this poem that I wrote. Um, because, you know, we're not really good typically. I don't know a lot of, we have some, I'm sure we have some good poets in our church. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to write good poetry. But here John includes this. And you'll notice that it's broken down into two stanzas that enfold exactly the same way. John addresses children, fathers, and young men. Verses 12, 13a, and 13b. And then again in the next stanza, children, fathers, and young men. Um, now, there, again, he varies the order there in the second part. But um, there's some debate as to what these three descriptors mean. Children, fathers, and, and young men. Is John referring, is he speaking metaphorically or is he speaking literally? In other words, is he saying, when he says children, is he talking about new believers, you know, those who are brand new in the faith? And when he says fathers, he's talking about those who are mature in the faith, you know, further down the road. And when he says young men, he's talking about those who are, who are trusting in Christ. Um, they're really resting in Christ, but there's a lot of maturation that needs to take place. 
There are so many uh, well-respected scholars who say, yeah, this is, this is metaphorical. It's not literal. And then there's some other equally respected scholars who say that children, fathers, and young men are actually literal references. So when John writes to children, he's writing to, to real children, you know, kids. When he writes to fathers, he's writing to those who were real fathers. And when he writes to young men, he has actual young adult men in mind. Now, the problem with the literal view is that John refers over and over in this letter to, the, to his adult readers as children. He says, children, children, children. So he says that over and over. So it seems that a completely literal view is not the right approach. And I think the best, what I believe the best approach here is more of a both and. Some of the folks that John is writing to are undoubtedly children who will have this letter read to them in the gathered assembly by uh, a leader in the church. Some are, of course, real fathers. They have children that are under their care. And some are uh, young men, you know, young, young adult men. But, but some of those that he's referring to, and this is why I think we have to look at this as a both and. Some that he's writing to are actually, he says children, but he's actually talking to adults. We see that in this letter. Some are fathers and mothers, but they're really more mentors or encouragers of others. And some, when he writes to young men, again, these are just folks who are, uh, they're trusting in Christ, but there's a lot of maturation that needs to take place. So the point is, he's writing to young and old, mature and immature, those far along in their faith who have, you know, years behind them, and also those who are just beginning their walk. And he offers to these groups of people, again, this very broad application, uh, this encouragement. He says in verse 12, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So here's the, the point, I believe, the first point that John is making as it relates to these assurances. Whether you're young or old, uh, spiritually or chronologically, you're young in the faith or you're, you're, you're well advanced in years, if you're in Christ, you have reason to rejoice. Your sins and guilt have been removed. Now think about, the, again, these believers that at, at John's writing to in these scattered churches. There are people in those churches, so they're really being persecuted from outside and from within. So those outside are the ones who are part of the church, but they left the church. They apostatize, if you will. They turn their back on the Christian faith. They have denou- they've denounced Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And they're gone and they're, they're persecuting the believers. And there are those in the church, false teachers who are trying to garner a following. And so you have these very confused and perplexed believers. And what John says to them is, if you're in Christ, your sins and the guilt that accompanies those, your, they've been forgiven and forever removed from the mind of God. They're gone and will never, ever reappear again. But they didn't, sins and guilt didn't just disappear, as in a cloud of smoke. They were effectively dealt with. It wasn't those God said, you know, I I recognize, I know you're guilty. I know you're guilty. I've seen it. I know you're guilty, but you know what? Actually, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You're not, I'm just going to pretend like you're not guilty at all. No, the sins and guilt didn't just disappear. By his own initiative and because of his love, God secured our acquittal by sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins and to take upon himself our guilt. John tells his audience in verse 12, their sins are forgiven. What 
for his name's sake. Now, what does this mean? Well, to do something for the sake of a person's name is to do something on account of or because of that person. So forgiveness for his name's sake is another way of saying that what John has already said in this letter, God forgives our sins and removes our guilt on account of or because of Jesus Christ, the one God sent as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And John says that their sins are forgiven. So we don't do a lot of sort of, we don't look at a lot of, we don't parse a lot of Greek words here, but sometimes it is very important, the New Testament written in Greek. And in this, this particular phrase, your sins are forgiven, it, it occurs in what's called the perfect passive tense. Now here's why that matters. John doesn't simply say that they were forgiven, nor does he simply say they will be forgiven, but they are forgiven in the perfect passive tense. In other words, all your sins are forgiven, forever forgiven, and they will never, ever be held against you again. So there will, if you're in Christ this morning, there will never be a time when God says, you know what, I know that you, we've already addressed this, and, but actually I want to bring this up to you again. I'm going to hold this over your head. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to discipline you because of this, even though it's already been forgiven. All our sins are forgiven and will never be used against us or held against us again. I mentioned to you this is written, this letter is written to confused and anxious and unsure and persecuted Christians. And John wants to, to encourage them in their faith so that they will persevere. Well, what does this have to do with persevering in their faith? Well, not only were these Christians that John writes to, again, persecuted from outside, as I mentioned, those who had left the church and now had turned their gaze onto these folks and put a target on them, they were embroiled in this spiritual battle as well um, inside the church, the false teachers, and, and even at war with the evil ones. So there's a spiritual warfare going on. And John comforts them with the reality that their past, present, and future sins are all, all covered by Jesus. Now, there's another interesting dynamic here, really, that re relates to the, the Greek language. The ESV, which I'm reading, translates verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And I think that's a good translation. I don't pretend to be you know, more skilled than the ESV translators, but I do think there's another way to look at this um, the Greek word translated because is, is, is the word hati, which is not to be confused by what a young man or young woman may say about another person. He or she's a real hati. This is a different word. Let me show you what it looks like on um, the screen behind me. So this is the word hati, and, and it's a Greek word that can be translated because, but it's also often translated for or that. And you say, why are you telling this, us this? Why does this have anything to do with this? Well, this is a subordinating conjunction that is most often translated that. And here in 1 John 2, some translations of the Bible render, render this word that as if to say what John is saying to you is to them is, I'm writing to you, little children, that your sins are forgiven. In other words, I'm telling you, I'm reminding you, I want you to know for sure your sins are forgiven. One biblical scholar argues that point when he says, John has spoken already about the forgiveness for those who confess their sins, in one nine, something that clearly applies to all true believers. Thus, the author writes to affirm that their sins are forgiven. Now, again, why does that matter? Well, 
I think so often in Christian circles, we believe that our primary job with one another is to sniff out and confront sin in each other's lives. I think sometimes we believe that our primary responsibility is to keep an eye on one another and to point out one another's sins. And, and there's a place for that. You know, we just talked about this last week. If someone is caught in sin, you know, we, we go we pursue that person. But I wonder if we might be better off spending more of our time encouraging Christians who are struggling and anxious and beaten down and exhausted and guilt-riddled with their own failures and inadequacies and blow-ups and so on, encouraging them, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I have to admit, I'm a little, I'm probably a little or more than a little jaded when it comes to these accountability groups that Christians get in so, so often. And usually what they are, two or three folks together, you sit around and, you know, you talk about your, your worst sins for the week. And, and then if, you, if a person doesn't, you know, you ask probing questions to get at those sins. And, and so there's this sort of time of confession. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is a biblical notion that we confess our sins to one another. But I say that I'm a bit jaded because I'm just not sure how effective that really is. I had, I had dinner with a guy two weeks ago, and uh, he told me that the whole time he was in an accountability group, for nine months he was in this accountability group with two other guys, and the whole time he was sneaking off with a woman who wasn't his wife. All the while, fully engaged, or by all appearances, in an accountability group. I had dinner with... Uh, uh, there's another guy, this is years ago, that I was actually in an accountability group with myself early on in ministry. And I would later find out that the whole time we were having our accountability group, he was involved with two women in an extramarital sexual relationship. Um, this happens, so I played golf with a guy not long ago, uh, not from our church, but he told me that while he was in an accountability group, he was caught up in pornography and never once admitted it. Now, I realize the problem is not accountability groups per se, right? The problem is our own deceitfulness and our own sin. I just wonder how fruitful we might be if we devoted more of our time to telling other disheartened Christians, your sins are forgiven in Christ. When's the last time you said to another anxious believer, remember, your sins are forgiven. God is not holding this against you. God is not going to bring up your past and thrust it in your face as a way to discourage you. Of course, I'm not talking about, again, I'm not talking about minimizing sin. I'm not talking about overlooking sin. Um, none of those things. Last week, again, we talked about the importance of pursuing those caught in sin. I'm talking about establishing a culture where we're preaching the gospel to each other regularly and it's the gospel that the early church would have recognized as this, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, if we remind Christians that they're forgiven, uh, won't that cause them to become lax in their obedience? It never, ever works that way. This is now how grace works. People say, oh, if you preach grace or you talk about grace, it's going to lead people to this licentious behavior, and they're going to kind of wander off morally. That's not the way it works. That's not the way grace works. Now, we may think that. I mean, it may seem that way, but this is the great uh, paradox of grace. 
fact, the Apostle Paul had to answer this question over and over in his letters. You keep talking about grace, but won't that cause sin to abound more? Paul uses that strong Greek word, uh, metanoia, uh, may it never be, right? Megenota, may it never be. Grace stirs the heart. God's one-way love compels us to love. Knowing that we're forgiven actually moves us to worship and joyful obedience. If you're still not tracking, you don't believe, and think about this, how do you feel towards someone that you know loves you deeply and without conditions? How do you feel toward that? Well, you, you, you want to love that person in return, don't you? You want to honor that person in return. You want to sacrifice for that person. So again, the point that I'm making here is, is if you're an accountability group, you know, don't get out of it. Please. I mean, I'm not telling you get out of it. I'm not saying it's, it's not of value. But what I am saying is um, maybe our focus should be, as I believe John's is here, as much on encouraging one another in our, where we are in Christ that our sins are forgiven rather than perhaps sort of trying to uh, sniff out one another's sins. That seems to be the approach that John takes. Well, what else does he tell them? What other assurance? Look at verse 13a. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So again, remember these three descriptors, descriptors can be interpreted broadly. So John tells these struggling Christians, you know him who is from the beginning, which in John's writings, both here and in the Gospel of John, is a reference to Jesus Christ, the word of life, who was there at creation. So John says, I'm writing to you because you know him who was there at the beginning, Jesus. And then he says in 13b, I'm writing to you because you know the Father. What John is doing here is reassuring these Christians of their status with God, namely that they are children of God, not just recognized by the creator of the universe as sort of human beings, but brought into his family as sons and daughters. So here's that second assurance, I believe, our second point. To know the Father through Christ his Son is to be engrafted into a familial, a family relationship that nothing or no one can sever. This is a life-changing realization to understand fully that you are known by God and that you know the living God. In Christ, we actually know the God. We have a relationship with God as Father, the very God who created the heavens and the earth. Now, I think I've, I've shared this, with, this story with you a few years ago, but I was, when one of my girls was an early teenager, I accidentally called her by her sister's name. And I kept doing it over and over. I mean, I wasn't doing it on purpose. You know, if you have multiple kids, you, you know how this goes, right? And maybe you even call, you may even use the dog's name for one of your kids, but th this is the way it works sometimes, right? So I kept calling this daughter the wrong name by the name of my other daughter. And she was like, Dad, I am, stop doing that, please. Like, this is really upsetting me. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't mean to do it. I said, will you forgive me? She said, no, I'm not going to forgive you anymore for this. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that God doesn't treat me like you do. He forgives me when I repent. And she said, I'm really glad that God doesn't treat me like you do. He knows my name. And, and the thing is, now, she had won the argument. She's right over here if you want to talk with her. Uh, 
she had won the argument, right? But what I was encouraged by was even in a very snarky way, she was letting me know, yeah, God actually knows me. God knows who I am. And this is an incredible reality to think that, that God can be known by fickle, sinful human beings. And in biblical thought, to be known by God, by the way, is much more than just being recognized. It refers to being the object of his divine affection and care. Even, hang with me here, even the object of his choosing. When God is reminding Israel of his relationship with them and showing them why they need not fear because he is their God and they are his people. He reminds them of his covenant faithfulness. And then he says to them through the prophet Amos in Amos 3, 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, do we think for a second that God didn't know the other families of the earth? Of course he did. Not only did he know them, he knew them very well. He knew them so well, he knew the very thoughts that went through their head. So yeah, God knew the other families of the earth. It wasn't that he didn't know them. But here he's telling Israel, he has chosen them. He has set upon them his covenantal affection. He, they were an object of his divine affection before the nation was even, even put together. He knows them in that they belong to him. They are his people and he are, they are his, they are his people and he is their God. And what John wants these first century believers to know is that you really know God. And there may be people coming around in your church. There may be saying to you, well, you have to have this special knowledge or this special experience or whatever it is to really know God. But John says, no, you belong to him. You are actually in his family. You are the sons and daughters of God, and nothing can ever change that. The same is true for us. We belong, if we're in Christ, we belong to the Heavenly Father. We are his children. And unlike earthly fathers, our heavenly father cannot disown his own. He cannot abandon those he's adopted. He will protect and nurture and provide for his children. John Newton, who, you know, wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, once said this, everything, that is, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. In other words, everything that God gives us, whether it's our trials, our victories, our setbacks, the things that we celebrate, the things that we mourn, those things are all needful for us. We need those to progress in our faith and to deepen our love for God. But the contrast of that is there's nothing that we actually need for our own spiritual well-being that He withholds and doesn't give us. It's pretty amazing to think. Now, sometimes we think, if I only had blank... I'd be happy, right? If I only had more money or, or more friends or a better car or a better job or a husband or, or a different husband, whatever it is, I know if I just had that one thing, it'd be better. But picking up on John's letter here, Newton says, look, whatever you have, it's all you need right now. And if there's something that you really need, God will not withhold that from you. So knowing God as Father, as our good and perfect Father, is the encouragement that we find on those dark days, on those days when He seems so far away, on those days when we don't feel God's presence, on those days when we're overwhelmed with guilt over past sins or the feeling like we're never doing enough. God is our Father, and He gives us everything we need, and He delights in us. 
the late J.I. Packer, pastor and theologian, just, just recently passed away about five years ago, said that this truth is really at the heart of the Christian faith. God is Father. He writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. So let me just say to you this morning, in, in picking up on what John has said here, again, if you're in Christ, you know God and He knows you. And there may be, you may be in the middle of a spell right now, in the middle of a season, where you just feel like you are underwater. You're gasping for breath. You just feel like you can't keep up with all the responsibilities in your life. Well, you need to know this morning that you have a father who will never disown you. In fact, it's impossible for him to disown his own. He loves you, and he is right now ministering to you in ways that maybe you can't even see or feel. But he is working in you and through you to sustain you and to increase your joy in him and he has good things in store for you ultimately. So that's the second assurance. Well, what's the third? Look at verse 13 again. Verse 14, John repeats, I write to you because you are strong and have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, he adds, the word of God abides in you. So this is really one assurance with three different dimensions, so to speak. What he's saying is because the word of God abides in you, you are strong, and therefore you have conquered the forces of the evil one. Well, what does that mean? Let me start with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Satan is no longer our adversary who seeks to destroy us. He is. Satan is real. He is a formidable foe, and he walks around, he prowls around, and he has his demons, and they're seeking to destroy anything they can. His influence is seen in every part of fallen creation. For every gospel-motivated action, there is a corresponding counteraction by Satan and his demons. We saw this when we studied the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, you know, six or nine months ago, that as the gospel goes out and begins to bear fruit by the power of God, Satan is actively at work trying to hinder that. Now, he can't. He can only go so far as God would allow him because God is sovereign even over Satan. And God is all-powerful and Satan is limited in his power. But we should not dismiss, we should not uh, diminish or ignore the fact that we do have a real enemy, a spiritual enemy. So before we start talking about, you know, stomping Satan's neck or giving Satan a swirly, which some rap songs boast, we need to realize just who it is that we're dealing with. This is a real enemy. Again, formidable foe. He is at work in everything that is evil, and he is uh, opposed to everything that is good. He is vicious. But, John says, twice to young men, which again, we can apply broadly. You have overcome the evil one. All believers are currently and will finally be victorious over the evil one because God himself has claimed them as his own, and his son Jesus abides in them and will sustain them through their faith in him. 
Let me say it a different way. This is our final point as far as assurances go. The victory over evil that Christ secured by his death and resurrection guarantees our victory, both in the present and in the future. Because Christ has defeated death and evil and Satan on the cross, confirmed by God raising him from the dead, it means that we are now presently victors over Satan and the evil one, and we will ultimately enjoy a future victory where we will reign with Christ on a new earth with Christ as our brother and judge, and the Christ who will judge with us, who will righteously rule in every area. So through faith in Jesus, your victory over the evil one is as certain as your existence. No power, no scheme, no demonic machinations can destroy you. Satan can never overtake you. Satan can never inhabit you. Satan can never dwell within you. Now, he can seek to torment you by his minions. But you are already victorious in Christ. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with persevering in the faith? Well, one of the devil's greatest weapons is actually guilt. This is one of the, the devil's greatest weapons. When we sin, which, which we all do, the evil one wants us to be constantly racked with guilt and despair and hopelessness so that he's hoping that we would then give up on our faith. There's a reason that he's called the accusers of the brothers who accuses them day and night in Revelation 12. Because we all deal with the residue of indwelling sin, which means we all sin all the time. In our words, in our actions, in our motives, in our thoughts, we sin. And what Satan wants to do, in fact, one of his most effective strategies, is to discourage and confuse Christians into believing that their particular offense or pattern of sin is beyond God's mercy to forgive. This is a lie from hell, though. This is not the truth. It is a lie that must be confronted, which John does here. He makes it absolutely clear to these folks that, one, their sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. They will never be held against them again. There's not one single sin that God is holding over them. There's not one single offense that they've committed against God that God will ever turn around and say, you know what, that's going to separate you from me. So one of the first assurances, their sins are forgiven. The second, he says, you are a member of God's family. You know God as Father, and He knows you. And then finally, that third assurance is there is no power of hell, no scheme of the devil. Again, there's no plot or plan by the devil or his minions that can ever destroy anyone who is in Christ. By faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, you are already more than conquerors in him who loved you. So what does that mean we're supposed to do then? This is the question that you know, we always ask after a sermon. After What am I supposed to do? Well, if all of these things are true for us by faith in Christ, then if you're looking for something to do, then maybe what we do is we, we do those things. We, we, get it, we engage ourselves in those rhythms which actually strengthen our faith. If these are benefits that are ours by faith through Christ, then if you're looking for something to do, engage in those things that strengthen your faith. Again, regular time in the Word, taking in the great story, ongoing and regular time of desperate prayer, 
Time of fellowship with God's people. Time in corporate worship. Time in silence, in solitude. Practicing those spiritual disciplines which will deepen and strengthen our faith because it's by faith in Christ that all of these benefits are ours. Well, one of the, one of the rhythms that we engage in to strengthen our faith is participating in the Lord's table. Because we all, whether or not you struggle with a guilt complex, we all have those times, we all have those moments, we all have those occasions when we think, could God really love me? Are my sins really forgiven? Does God know about this one? This one that I committed a year ago or two years ago or ten years ago? Is that really forgiven? So what we do is we participate in the Lord's table. I'm going to pray and we're going to celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Christ by this very tactile, tangible reminder of the completeness of Christ's work. Father in heaven, 